good morning, church family. It is a, a joy and a pleasure for me to get the, the opportunity to teach this morning. Um, if you've had a chance to glance at your handout yet, you've probably noticed that there's quite a bit of content on it. There's a lot of blanks to get through, so I'm not going to waste any time in the beginning. I'm not going to tell any funny jokes. We're just going to jump right in uh, to our handout. You can go ahead and start turning to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. As you're turning there, let me go ahead and give you some of the contextual setup to the book before we actually read chapter 1. So the first point is that 1 Peter was written by Peter the Apostle. 1 Peter written by Peter the Apostle. We learned that from the first line of the book. 1 Peter 1, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that's a really obvious point, but I think it's an important, important point for us to start with. This book was not written by some random person. This was written by one of the 12 disciples, one of the 12 apostles, probably, one, probably the most famous of the 12 apostles, the apostle Peter. And Peter is probably the most famous of the 12 apostles because he was the loudest of the 12 apostles. Most of the time when you're reading in the Gospels, if there's dialogue between Jesus and some of the disciples, Peter is in there giving his two cents. He's not afraid to jump in to, to give his two cents in whatever situation is going on. All right? One of my favorite parts uh, in Matthew 16 involving Peter, uh, in a span of six verses, Jesus goes from calling Peter the rock on which he will build his church to Satan. It, it, he says something wrong, and, and Peter tries to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus rightly puts Peter in his place and says, get behind me, Satan. He goes from the rock on which Jesus will build the church to being called Satan. That little uh, dialogue there is just a microcosm of who Peter was. He's a very, very bold guy, quick to speak, but sometimes that he made very, very foolish decisions because he was so quick to speak. But you guys need to understand as we read First Peter, knowing that it's the Apostle Peter, it is that same Apostle Peter, but Peter is no longer that same guy. Peter is much older, Peter is much wiser, more mature in his faith. The Peter in the, the Gospels, when trials came his way, when Jesus was being crucified, and people were asking him, hey, do you know who Jesus is? That guy folded. That guy folded under the pressure, under the persecution. He denied knowing who Jesus was. But at the end of his life, this was written just a few short years before he died, when given another opportunity to be obedient to Jesus and to suffer well, he did it well. He was obedient. He was obedient. When Peter wrote this, he was actually in prison in Rome for refusing to be quiet about Jesus. So yes, it's the same Peter the Apostle, but Peter was not that same guy. He had grown in his faith in so many ways. So Peter the Apostle wrote it. He was writing it to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are all just regions in that area of, of Asia Minor. Uh, let me give you a map real quick. So the, the big circle on the right is all the churches that it would, have been, it would have been sent to. It would have been circled around to all those places. So it wasn't written to just one individual church, but multiple churches in this area. And Peter, on the top left hand, he's in Rome. He's in prison in Italy. Okay, and that's, he sent it to those churches. So that's who he's writing it to. Why was he writing it? What was the purpose of the letter? First Peter was written to encourage these Christians to stay faithful to God in the midst of their trials and sufferings. Stay faithful in the midst of your trials, persecution, your sufferings. They were going through 
trials. Many of them were facing very, very strong persecution from the world around them. Now, this wasn't systematic, drag out all the Christians and burn them alive persecution, but they were being persecuted for their faith. They were being mocked. They were being ridiculed. They were having to suffer because of their faith in Jesus. Most of these people who lived here, most of the recipients of this letter were Gentiles, Gentile people. They weren't raised in a, a Christian home, you might say, a, a religious family. They were raised in a, people that devoted idol worship, right? People that worshiped idols and all of those things that go along with that. They lived in a society where, where those kinds of things were normal. Okay, the sinful practices that come along with that were normal. Those things were celebrated. That's the people that he's writing to. They've come out of that lifestyle. And as they're trying to walk in this new faith, right, they've been converted to Christianity, they're getting pushback from, from the Gentiles, from the people who, who still live like they used to, from their old friends, their old family, who don't understand why they no longer participate with them in the sinful things they used to do. Like today, when a person is from a non-Christian family and they get saved in their adulthood, their non-Christian friends and family, they may not understand immediately why they did this, and they might try to ask them questions or, or make fun of them or try to drag them back to their old ways of living. That's what's happening here in First Peter. So that's our contextual setup. Let me give you the, uh, the big idea of our particular text in First Peter chapter 1, and it is that Christians have been born again into a living hope and a promised inheritance that leads us to rejoice in trials until we obtain the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. So that's a, that's a lot to take in. Let me read it again. Christians have been born again into a living hope and a promised inheritance that leads us to rejoice in trials until we obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So that's a big idea. Let's go ahead and jump in. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Peter tells these churches, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So that's God's word. Let's, let's begin in prayer this morning. God, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you wrote it, that we can read exactly what you intended us to read. God, I just pray that you would sharpen us this morning as we learn from Peter and really through you what you have to teach us this morning. So we ask this in your name. Amen. So, a lot of you guys are probably familiar with uh, the pastor named Joel Osteen. He wrote uh, this book, we're going to put it on the screen, called Your Best Life Now by a pastor named Joel Osteen. Uh, Joel Osteen is maybe the most, one of the most at least, famous pastors uh, in America, maybe in the world. 
today. This book, Your Best Life Now, it's not a new book. He wrote it back in 2004. It's not really that new. But in this book, Joel Osteen is making the argument that we can have all the benefits of our salvation now. You can have your best life now. When, when you get saved, when you're born again, you get all of the benefits of heaven immediately, now, in this life. We're talking health, wealth, happiness, success. Jesus wants you to have those things now, in this life. If you will just believe hard enough, you can receive those. You can receive them. And if you're not receiving them, you need to pray some more. You need to read the Bible some more. It's your fault if you're not receiving those things. It's an idea known as the prosperity gospel. Okay, so that's Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now, Your Best Life Today. Let's talk about a phrase. Um, we say it all the time on social media now. It's talking about living my best life, living my best life. I'm not trying to say this is a bad thing to say at all. It's not a sin- sinful thing to say. When people say living my best life, they're not saying I agree with Joel Osteen, I agree with the prosperity gospel. Jesus wants to, to give me all of my heart's desires now. But this is the thing that people post on social media. It's just a, a catchy, a lighthearted way of saying that somebody's doing something that they really love to do, right? You take a picture, somebody's doing something fun, and they put hashtag, living my best life. I'm living life to the fullest. But we gotta understand, when Peter reminds these Christians that they've been born again, he is not telling them, you can have your best life now. He is not telling them, guys, you are living your best life today. In fact, he's pretty much telling them the exact opposite of that. He's telling them, guys, life is really, really hard. It's really tough. And it's going to be even harder if you remain faithful to Jesus. No, this is not your best life. Your best life is still to come. So let's, let's, look at, let's look at this. Look at what Peter told these churches about the next life, the one that's still to come, about the nature of our new birth, and through that, what he's telling us about the new birth, about us being born again. What does 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9 teach us about being born again? Firstly, we're born again because of God's mercy. We're born again because of God's mercy. Right there in the middle of verse 3. It says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. According to God's great mercy, God has caused us to be born again. Nothing that these Christians had done made God love them or made God show them mercy. They didn't convince him in any way. They were born again simply because God had a desire to be merciful and God is a loving God. Church, that process has not changed at all in the last 2,000 years. We're born again by God's mercy. There's no way to be born again apart from the mercy of God, apart from God causing it to happen. So God saved them and he saves us because he's merciful. We're born again because of his mercy. That's how we can be saved. That's why we can be saved. But how did he actually accomplish our salvation? He's merciful, but how did he actually go about accomplishing our salvation? Well, he did it through the resurrection of Jesus. We're born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It wasn't enough for God to just have the desire to show us mercy or or to think about showing us mercy. He actually had to do something to bring it about, to make it possible for sinful people like us. Okay, the Christmas season is coming soon. Some of you, it's probably been here since 
June. We've been here for a while, right? Christmas is coming soon. One of the phrases that we teach our children at Christmas is it's the thought that counts, okay? I've said this. We've probably all said this, right? When you're driving to grandma's house, you got to coach your kids before you get there. Kids, it's the thought that counts, okay? Whether grandma gets you a pair of socks for the seventh year in a row or she gets you an Xbox this year, it doesn't matter. It's the thought that counts, okay? It's the thought that counts. But let's be honest for a minute and think about whether we actually believe that in full, okay? So if, if somebody buys you a brand new car for Christmas, okay, and another person walks up to you and says, hey, I really thought about buying you a new car for Christmas, but I couldn't spend that money. I bought you a box of chocolate-covered cherries instead. You might tell that person to the face, that's okay, it's a thought that counts, right? Pat them on the back, it's just a thought that counts. But you most certainly will not view those things the same way, right? One person actually did something. They actually bought you a car. The other person only considered it. They only thought about it, right? Jesus, God, to accomplish our salvation, he had to do more than just consider saving us, to do more than just think about saving us. He actually had to give something up, and he gave Jesus. He gave his son to the world to save us. And Jesus, after living a perfect life, he was nailed to the cross, and he died to take the penalty of our sin. It was his loving sacrifice on the cross that made it possible for God to show us mercy. That's the way that God shows us mercy. And because of that, people like us who we're spiritually dead, can now be made alive. Right? We're made alive through Jesus. Because after Jesus' work on the cross was complete, God brought Jesus back to life. He resurrected Jesus. Death could not contain Jesus. Death was swallowed up in the victory of Jesus. So the resurrection of Jesus is the act that actually accomplishes our salvation. It's what allows us to be born again. And it's what allows us to be born again into a living hope. We're born again to a living hope. Our hope is not dead, it's alive. At conversion, we went from being people who were spiritually dead. Romans says every single one of us were born spiritually dead. But because of the cross and because of the resurrection, we can be made spiritually alive. We can be born again. Those of you who have been born again, you're now alive spiritually. You used to be dead, but praise God, you are now alive spiritually. You are alive because Jesus is alive. Your hope is alive because Jesus is alive. The resurrection of Jesus is what gives power to our faith. It's what gives power to our hope. And our hope is not the way that we use hope today. Our hope is not half-hearted. It's not some some meager, some faint thing that we just don't really think will happen, but we hope it will happen. There is assurance to our faith. There's conviction to our faith because of the resurrection, because we've been born again into a living hope. And we've been born again to an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that is being kept in heaven for us. We're born again to an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that is being kept in heaven for us. Peter is talking about our salvation, our salvation, what awaits us in the next Life, our inheritance that is to come. It, and he describes that inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's not something that can be taken 
away. Nothing can take it away. He says it's imperishable. It's never going to pass away. It's being guarded by God himself. God himself is guarding it. Nothing can take it away. He says it's undefiled. It can't be tainted. It can't be corrupted by sin in any way. It's pure. It's always been pure, and it always will remain pure. He says it's unfading, meaning it's never going to grow old. We're never going to grow tired of it. We're never going to grow bored with it. It's unfading. Pastors like Joel Osteen would like to convince you that the moment you get born again, the moment you are born again, you receive all of those benefits of your inheritance now. This is your best life now. We're living our best life today. But notice where Peter says our inheritance is located. At the end of verse 4, he says it's being kept in heaven for you. It's being kept in heaven. It's secure in heaven, but it's not here. It's in heaven, right? We don't receive it here in this life, but rest assured you will receive it. You will receive it. Nothing can remove it from the grip of God. Nothing can take it away. It's imperishable. It's undefiled, it's unfading, and it's being kept in heaven for you. So 1 Peter is a book that teaches us a lot about the next life, but it's also a book that teaches us about this life and the trials and the sufferings that we have to face in this life. And Peter has so, so much to teach us in his book about trials and suffering. We can't possibly go through all of them today, but we are gonna go through a few. So what does 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 3 through 9, teach us about trials and suffering. The first is that trials are not accidental. Trials are not an accident. Verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. They might be necessary. We are not enduring trials. You are not enduring trials because God has somehow lost his grip of the world and he needs to grab it back from Satan. That's not why we face trials. 1 Peter, 1, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Peter tells them, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He says you might suffer according to God's will. And the call is to entrust yourself to your faithful creator. Entrust yourself to God in the midst of it. And the amazing thing is that Jesus actually modeled this for us, how to do this. Go back to chapter 2, verse 23. Talking about the night of Jesus' crucifixion. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, when he faced suffering and trials and persecution far greater than we most likely will ever have to face, he entrusted himself to the Father. And Peter tells us in that same way, when you face trials, it's not an accident. God is still in control and you need to entrust yourself to your faithful creator, your faithful creator, to the God who loves you. God is still in control. If Jesus did not endure his suffering, we couldn't be saved. Jesus' suffering is what brought about our salvation. Jesus' suffering was not an accident. Our trials and suffering is not 
an accident. God is still in control and he still loves you and he wants you to trust him in the middle of it. Next, trials come in various ways. He says, in this you rejoice, verse six, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Various trials. So these Christians here that Peter was writing to were facing very, very intense persecution. And church, that day is coming here in America. In parts of our country, it is already here. If we're honest, for the last couple hundred years, it's been relatively easy to be a Christian in America. For the most part, whether people were Christians or not, they kind of viewed the values of Christianity as a good thing, like thumbs up to Christians, whether they believed in it or not. But church, that day is quickly, quickly fading away. To many in our society, Christianity is viewed as a great hindrance to society, a great hindrance to progress. Our thinking is medieval, and we need to do away with that kind of thinking. Now, we're shielded from it some here in the Bible Belt, but that worldview is rapidly, rapidly gaining ground, and it will come. You will face, most likely, if you haven't yet, some type of persecution similar to what this church was going through. But persecution is only one type of trials and suffering that exists. Trials come in various ways, in many different ways. Trials can come in the form of pain and, and sickness and death. You lose your job. You lose your, your friends. There's many, many, many different ways that we can face trials and sufferings. And we're called to entrust God in the midst of them. Next, trials test the genuineness of our faith. Trials test the genuineness of our faith. He tells them, you're grieved by trials, I know, but verse 7 so that, or the purpose, is that the tested genuineness of your faith that's more precious than gold may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Trials test the genuineness of our faith. Now, I want you to hear what Peter is saying by that and what he's not saying. He is not saying that you enduring your trials is the act that makes you born again. He's not saying you enduring trials is what saves you, as if by some way our works could save us. But he is saying that those who endure their trials, those trials prove that their faith is genuine. It proves that they did have genuine faith from the beginning. And he uses an illustration. He talks about gold being refined by fire. When a gold miner discovers gold in the earth, it does not look like the, the beautiful pieces that you find in a jewelry store or a coin shop after it's been refined. It kind of just looks like an ugly rock. I mean, a little bit shiny. It just kind of looks like a rock. But gold refiners will take these rocks that look like this, and they'll melt them down. Okay, they melt them down so that they can separate out the genuine gold, the real gold, from the stuff that's not, from the other stuff that we don't want. And you know, before that process happened, the parts that were gold were still gold. They were already gold. They didn't become gold through that refinement process. What that process of that melting down that refinement does is it separates out the real gold from the fake and we can see which is real gold and which is not and that's what Peter tells them right trials do not make our faith genuine faith is already genuine or not but trials help us reveal what faith is genuine and what faith is not so they test the genuineness of our faith 
Next, suffering because of obedience is a way of participating in the sufferings of Christ. Suffering because of obedience is a way of participating in the sufferings of Christ. Now, admittedly, this isn't a point I drew directly from chapter one in isolation, but the theme of 1 Peter, it's a theme that's very prevalent throughout the entire book of 1 Peter. I've given you a long list of scriptures. Uh, you can look up on your own a lot of those, but we're gonna look at a couple of them this morning. So 1 Peter chapter two, verse 21, he talks about us suffering because we're being obedient to Jesus. Verse 21, it says, for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Christ was obedient and he suffered. When we are obedient, we might be called to suffer. First, uh, chapter four, verse one. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It says, when you suffer, you are following in the footsteps of Christ, who suffered far more than you did. You are in some small way participating in the sufferings of Christ. So we've looked at what Peter taught these early churches about the nature of our new birth, our inheritance that's awaiting us, and about the trials and sufferings that we face in this life. Now we come to the part where we have to ask ourselves, so what? Why does this matter for us, what, what do we do with this? What do we do with this information, the truth that Peter is teaching us here? The first point is be ready to suffer well. Be ready to suffer well. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, it tells him, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Listen, guys, don't be surprised when you have to face trials and suffering. Don't, don't look at it as, some, as if that's crazy, like this, that's, that would never happen before. You should expect it. We should be ready for it. Be ready to suffer well and suffer in obedience. If we wait to talk about trials and sufferings or, or we wait to get ready until trials are here, it's probably gonna be too late. We gotta be ready to suffer well, even before we're in the midst of the storm. Be ready to suffer well, but how do we actually go about suffering well? Well, he tells them in verse six to rejoice. Rejoice in the truth of the gospel during your trials. Now that sounds a little bit cold and uncaring, like Peter, you see all these people and they're suffering, and you just tell them, be happy, like be joyful, just Think positively. Is that what he's telling them? No, he's telling them you can rejoice because this is not your best life. This is not your home. This is not your best life now. You can rejoice in that, and your trials remind you of that fact, right? that your, your joy, your hope is not found here. It's found in the next life, in the inheritance that is awaiting you, and you can rejoice now in the promise that's still to come. And when we realize that that's what allows us to rejoice, even in the midst of trials and times of pain and suffering, because we know our inheritance is not here. Our best life is not now. It is to come. Next, don't love this world, but don't hate it either. We should not love this world. We should not hate it either. 
The whole book of 1 Peter is a call for these Christians in Asia Minor to endure the persecution that the world is bringing around them. He wants, to, uh, he wants them to not go back into their old sinful ways of living. They were Gentiles, worshipped idols. They, they met Christ. They were saved. They were born again. He tells you, don't fall back into that. Don't fall back into the love of the world. Chapter 2, verse 11. He tells them, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Abstain from those things. Do not go back into those things. Don't fall back in love with the ways of the world like you used to be before you were born again, before you were given a new inheritance. And in the very next verse, verse 12, he tells him, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's telling them, don't be like the world, but, but you can't completely remove yourself away from it entirely. You should interact with those people still. It says keep your conduct among them honorable. He doesn't tell them only do your business with other Christian people. Only associate with those who hold the exact same beliefs as you. No, he still expects them to have interactions with non-believing people, even at the risk of being wronged by them. He says, some of them might speak evil against you. You should expect them to wrong you. But he doesn't want that to lead them to pull away from the world because they're, they're afraid of it, afraid that they're going to wrong them. He wants you to continue love the world, continue loving them. And, and then he says, at the end of verse 12, continue loving them, keep your conduct honorable, and they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Maybe your love for them will be the way that Christ reveals himself to them. Okay, and that can't happen if we pull ourselves away from the world completely. So you gotta hold those things in balance. Don't love the world so much that you just become just like it and you fall back into sin, but don't hate it so much that you just remove yourself from it completely and you think you're too good to ever associate with people like that. If we hate the world too much, we won't be able to be salt and light in it. So you gotta hold those things in balance. Don't love the world, but don't hate it. Last point, remember that your suffering is short and your salvation is eternal. Your suffering is short, your salvation is eternal. Verse six tells them to rejoice, though now for a little while you have to go through trials, for a little while. He's not telling them their suffering is only gonna last a couple more days you know, another week or so, maybe, maybe a year. That's not what he's telling them. He's framing this sentence, your suffering's gonna last a little while, in light of eternity, in light of the scope of the new inheritance that they're gonna re- receive. And he's reminding them, even if you have to spend your entire life being persecuted and facing trials and suffering, it's really just a little while. It's really just a little bit of time in light of eternity. Now, we understand that these words written by Peter, these weren't written, spoken by a man who was out having a vacation, chilling on the beach, having a good time, out living his best life. These were words spoken by a man in the midst of trials, a man literally in prison awaiting to be executed, a man who would be executed just a few short years after writing this. But Peter believed in what 
he had written, he believed, even if I have to spend the rest of my life in prison and I ultimately have to die because of my faith, a suffering is really only gonna last a little while compared to the new inheritance that's in store for me when I pass from this life to the next. And Peter reminds these churches at the end of this section, even though you can't see him, even though you can't see Jesus, you continue to love him. And even though you can't see him, continue to believe in him. It says, believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We know Peter did that. Peter did that to the end of his life. And we are called to do that to the end. Until we take our last breath and we finally receive the inheritance that's awaiting, awaiting us and we obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. As long as we have breath in our lungs, we're called to rejoice in the truth of the gospel. Rejoice that we have a living hope, an inheritance that is awaiting us in heaven. And so we're going to do that this morning. We're going to end by rejoicing in the gospel and what Jesus did to accomplish our salvation. Not a salvation from the trials and sufferings in this life, but a salvation from the suffering that we deserved rightly in the next. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to end in song this morning. Let's pray.